Episode five of Chase the Peace. Thank you so much for being here. I'm honored. Uh, I can't wait to share my conversation with you. First, I have to give a massive shout out to my neighbor, MK Reichenbach, for connecting me with my guest, Meg Kissinger. Meg and MK went to high school together, and MK saw Meg in an interview talking about her new book, sent me the interview and said, hey, this made me think about you because of your podcast related to mental health. And I said, would you be willing to make an intro? Anyhow, she did. I was able to connect with Meg and she so graciously agreed um, to spend some time talking about um, her book, While You Were Out, An Intimate Family Portrait of Mental Illness in an Era of Silence. So we talked about the book and um, and her family. and it's just a, it's an unbelievable read. And um, it's a really fascinating conversation that I can't wait to share with you. And rather than me tell you more about Meg, let me read the bio from her book and we'll dive into our conversation. Meg spent more than two decades traveling across the country to report on America's mental health system for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. A Pulitzer Prize finalist, she's won dozens of accolades, including two George Polk Awards, the Robert F. Kennedy Award, awards from investigative reporters and editors in two national journalism awards. She teaches investigative reporting at Columbia Journalism School and was a visiting professor at DePaul University, her alma mater. Her stories on the abysmal living conditions for people with mental illness inspired changes to Wisconsin law and led to the creation of hundreds of new housing units. She lives in Milwaukee, Wisconsin with her husband. Let's dive into the conversation. Thank you again for being here. Well, Meg, I'm so honored that you're here on the Chase the Peace podcast. Thank you for spending your time um, with us today. I really, I think it'd be good to get started just by getting to know Meg. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and help us get to know you? Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm honored and delighted to be here. And I, I love what your message is all about, Nate, and happy to I have this conversation with you. So I am, um, gee, I'm a lot of things, but um, first and foremost, I guess, uh, for the purposes of our conversation here, I just wrote a book and I never thought that uh, I've been talking about it forever, but I finally actually, yes, there it is. So yeah. And uh, it, it took me a long, long, long time to write this thing. In fact, my kids teasing me for years like mom you're never gonna write that book anyway ha ha i did write it and it's (laughs) so glad of it but uh so it's a book about my family uh and about the mental health system so for most of my life i've been a newspaper reporter um and in the last um 25 years of those of that 40-year career uh, i spent really focusing on the problems with with mental health in, in america um, and what I learned um, along the reporter's trail, but my story goes back further than that because I grew up in Chicago uh, as the fourth kid in a family of eight kids, and there was a lot of mental illness in our family. I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and we just didn't talk about the mental illness that was all around us from both my mom and her anxiety and depression uh, to my dad, who was ultimately diagnosed as bipolar. And they were, you know, fantastic, wonderful people, but they made the curious choice to have eight kids in 12 years 
without really the wherewithal uh, to accommodate that or to deal with that. And um, as a result, I mean, it's not their fault that, but but uh, not several uh, members of my family suffered greatly from mental illness. And and again, in an era when we didn't know how to how to deal with that. So that was my my focus as a reporter was informed by my experiences as a sister and a daughter. Um, and this book is about both of those things, how that all came to be and, and what I learned. Yeah. And I have a lot of questions related to your book um, because it's phenomenal. Uh, the, your, your writing is just exceptional. And it's like you write in a way where I feel like i I didn't live it with you, but I feel like I did um, just because of, of how you described, especially um, the experiences related to Nancy and Danny, which we'll, we'll talk about um, in a little bit, but you, you talked about the mental health system and I, and I saw you in an interview recently and you described to the, um, a gentleman that was interviewing you, it's really not a system at all. Right. Um, Can you tell me what you mean by that? Sure. So, you know, the definition of a system is entities that work together and nothing about mental health care, really probably in the world, but my focus is on America, uh, works together. So by that, I mean, um, we don't know how to access care. Somebody in our family begins to show signs of distress and uh, maybe delusions or acting out in some way is very, very much in pain and we don't know we're, we're stifled from the get-go on how to get that person care who do we call how do we get help primary care doctors who are the, really the front line in the medical world aren't very often well trained or comfortable having these conversations so there's a disconnect right away then you know going forward insurance companies and and how quick they are really to deny uh, approval for care. So it's a struggle to get anything covered that you can afford. So there's there are tremendous barriers to mental health care that remain. People are working toward improving that. but uh, And then it, then it permeates really all of our institutions. So education, um, how equipped are teachers uh, to deal with the me- burgeoning mental health of the students that they deal that they're with all day long? Uh, religious organizations, how plugged in are they to provide care? So um, when I talk about the mental health system in quotes, it's because it doesn't really work together. It's starting to, and there's been a lot of improvement since when I was growing up, but. Uh, a lot of improvement, a lot of room for improvement. Yeah, it's, it seems to be one of those things we talk about more, uh, more, more freely, yeah. um, which, I, which I think is great. I think one of the things I realized, and we, we talked about this, Meg, a little bit when I had my challenges related to anxiety and depression, is that we talk about it in a macro sense pretty well at this point. Like there's, I think um, we're working on the stigma associated with that. I think we're making some progress there. Uh, what we don't, I think, do very well yet is is in the micro sense, where um, 
we talk about, hey, this was my experience. Here are the circumstances that led me to a place where um, I was struggling or I had um, some significant challenges or, um, you know, had a season where I was really depressed. Uh, and here are the things I did that were really helpful. Um, I think we're getting better about that. It, but you you mentioned, you know, that it's not really a system at all. There's um, primary care doctors aren't necessarily equipped. What? This is a huge question and not one we're going to solve in a conversation. Mm-hmm. But what needs to change? Yeah, I, I think it's it's so fundamental. This this sounds really squishy and kind of woo woo. But um, I really believe that this is where the change begins to happen. And that is us having conversations like you and I are having right now. But also, a lot of people refer to as mental health first aid. So how do we have these conversations with our friends and our loved ones, our family members, people who we're in direct conversation with all day long, or in contact with? And how do we uh, have those talks with them, make them feel comfortable, get them to trust us, tell us when they're not well? Um, and and what can we do to help them be well or get better? It's very easy to turn away. It's very easy to, to ignore, to marginalize, to just minimize or, or, or block out entirely somebody who is suffering and struggling. We don't do that if they're bleeding or if they're clutching their chest, like with chest pains. Um, we wouldn't do it if they, if a lump showed up, you know, somewhere on a cat scan or whatever. Um, but we do do it when it is depression or anxiety or behavior that's difficult to deal with. And, and so I understand the reasons why, but to your question, what can we do to chip away at that or, or to address that is, is learn to have, learn how to have these conversations. And that's not easy. You know, it's, um, it takes time. It takes patience. It takes, uh, really love thoughtfulness. Um, and it's, you have to set your ego aside. You know, when somebody is hurting they're it's tough to be around them. We see it in animals, you know, when animals are injured, they lash out. Human beings are the same. You know, there, you, there's pain from within and we may, may not, not be able to see it, but when somebody's acting out rudely or aggressively or in a way that's hurtful, it's easy to just say like screw you and turn away but i think if we're going to really help them we need to figure out ways to talk to them yeah that's really good so really it starts at at the most relational level um whether it's a friend or or family member and just being able to talk and i i think you know man that's why i started this because i um i don't think we all do a great job at that and i don't know it's not anyone's fault but you touch on it it's difficult it's yeah. not easy to help someone that's hurting when you really don't know how to help them. Sure. So I don't want to sugarcoat that and say like, oh, you know, just be, love your brother and sister and be a good neighbor. It, when human beings, again, when they're in pain and they are lashing out, it's scary and it's disconcerting and it's anger inducing. My sister, Nancy, who suffered uh, for her most of her life, was really mean and really hard to be around. And every once in a while, 
she would grab a knife and chase me around the house. That is very disturbing, aberrant behavior. Uh, she died when she was 24, um, and I was 20. Uh, but when when I was a teenager, when she was in the worst of her illness, I was scared of her. I, I wasn't just scared. I was also angry at her, and I didn't like her very much. Um, I loved her. She was my sister, but I didn't know in my teenage brain, I didn't know how to deal with her. Then my brother Danny, who also died, you know, he was also difficult to be around at times, very combative, and he would say hurtful things. I, I know now that they were coming from a place of great torment from within, but I didn't at the time. I, I internalized it. I, I made it personal. So I'm saying all this now with the space and time of years of, of thinking about this and processing it. Um, and, and, and I know it's difficult to be with people who are mentally not well. So I don't say that lightly, I, I, but that's, I think, what we are challenged to do. I want to talk about your book. Um, because it's just so phenomenal. And for anyone listening, uh, the book is called While You Were Out, and the subtitle is An Intimate Family Portrait of Mental Illness in an Era of Silence. Um, It is such a good read. Uh, What made you finally decide to write it? Yeah. Uh, Well, as I mentioned earlier, uh, it was a long time coming. But I'm a storyteller. That's what I. That's how I made my living. And for so much of that time, it was going out and about and talking with people struggling. Either they had mental illness or people in their family that they loved did, and it was wreaking havoc in their life. And of course, coming from the family that I did, I was so naturally inclined. I was fascinated by that. Why is it that the mental health, again, I'm using the word system, lightly or uh, in quotes but why is it that we don't take better care of people who are suffering and it was a way for me being a reporter nate was a way for me to ask the questions that i was too afraid or didn't know how to ask the people in my family so that provided me my career provided me years of cover if you will for um being able to plow into uh, what it was that was decimating my family, so that was helpful for me on a on a personal level. Uh, but but I always knew that the kind of sexiest or the most engaging story of of people suffering from mental illness was the most personal one for me. It was the one right in my lap. It was the story of my own family and my brothers and sisters. You know, so the, there were ten of us in the family. To a person, they are hilarious, warm, engaging, even the ones who died and who were, you know, were so terribly sick. They were funny, wonderful people. So I just knew I had great material. And my, my, I had one purpose in mind. And the purpose of my book was to bear witness, it was to show I wanted readers to, to feel what it was like to live in a family with so much love and affection but so much illness and our inability to deal with that and to talk about it in healthy ways led to even more heartache and sorrow. And I, I wanted readers to, to know what that felt like 
and and, th- and then that would maybe lead to a couple of things that would lead to them examining their own families and lives and wondering what they could do to improve that their situation. Yeah, just to and and to feel less alone. To, I want to invite the conversations from their families. Yeah, and that's so good, Matt, because I think that's the biggest challenge with anyone related to mental illness is feeling alone. You know, and I um and and your book does such a I you did bear witness. Like I felt like I was there with you. Yeah. Uh, how how long did it take you? Like from start to finish, when did yeah. you start writing it? Ooh. Funny story. Uh, well, the short answer is a long, long time. Probably, I got the idea for the story. I, I got the idea to write this up as a book. The year, like right when my brother Danny died. So he died in 1997. I just thought it was just stunning to have two suicides in one family. Anyway, I, I, I attempted many times. I couldn't, I really couldn't figure out how to tell this. I was scared still. And, you know, there's a lot of humil- humiliating things that happened. Mental illness is not pretty, and it causes you to do and act in ways that are very unpleasant. So I had a lot of false starts. I went to this um, amazing artist retreat in Lake Forest, Illinois. Illinois. It's called Ragdale. And I went there three times uh, for a couple of weeks each time. Uh, and came back with basically nothing. I just walked around the woods and checked my cell phone for cub scores, you know, doing stuff (laughs) I should have been doing. But anyway, it took me, it took me a lot longer. I, at one point thought it would be a great novel. So I tried to write it as a, as a novel. I I guess I'm not creative enough to come up with stuff that never really happened. Uh, It would be based on my family, but it just didn't feel right. The journalist in me is too bound to the truth. So I really needed to come up with a way to tell this story as a as a nonfiction, as a true story using actual facts, names, events. And that took a lot of courage and it took a lot of time to to gather the police records and the um you know the doc, the medical records and, and interview hundreds of people. Um so it took a long time, many years. Uh, but I would say once I got the contract to write the book, I got a, a contract from Celadon Press, which is a part of Macmillan, which is a, you know, it's a, it's a very, it's a New York publishing firm. So once I got that from start to finish three years. We need to, we need to do this. We need to give your brother a shout out. Which brother is it that won the free throw competition? Oh, what? Really? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> a lot of mileage off of that. So, so yeah, backstory with that, Nate, uh, just for the <laughs> listener's sake is when I sat down, you know, when I decided, okay, I'm, if I'm going to tell this family story, which I think is, can be really helpful for other people. Um, and so I, but, but I also love very much love and treasure my relationship with my brothers and sisters and we've been through so much pain we've lost two of us to suicide so i didn't want to re-traumatize them but i really wanted to tell the story because i knew it could be very helpful so i approached each of them and said what do you think like if i'm going to tell this thing i need to tell the whole truth and i need to as, as best as i could dig it out and i didn't know what i was going to find it was scary but to their credit they each said, sure, let's go for it. So my little brother, Billy, who's a jokester, great guy, 
uh, he teased me and said, please be sure to mention that I won the free throw contest and the one-on-one at St. Francis School in 1970, whatever it was, 73. (laughs) So that was the only demand that was made was that I include his basketball accolades. Okay. Shout out to Billy. Yeah. (laughs) You still got it, I think. Oh, that's awesome. You've talked about Nancy and Danny and um, their suicides and your your family didn't want to talk about it. And at the time of Nancy's death, your family didn't want to discuss it. And your father wanted Nancy's death to be described as an accident right. um, to, to those outside the family. And I saw you in an interview say it was just it was based on fear. But do you remember, like, how did that how did that couldn't have helped process at all? Like what? Yeah. How, yeah. So how did you react to that? Yeah. Not, not well is the quick answer. But um, so just to set the stage here, so this was 1978. So a long time ago. And Nancy had struggled greatly for many years. She was 24 when she died, but she really started getting sick when she was about 12 and was acting out. She'd had several suicide attempts. Um, lots of she swallowed pills very often, so much so that uh, on the day that she died, she swallowed a bottle of pills, and my mother called the paramedics. They had a well-worn path to the Kissinger house. So they came, they showed up at the house, pumped her stomach, and she was no longer in imminent danger of dying because she had vomited all the pills that she'd swallowed. So... Um, the paramedic said to my mother, you know, you could take, well, we could take her to the hospital, but that's going to, we'll have to charge you. Uh, and my mother who would, at that point, they had spent so much money, tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of dollars on my sister's mental health care. Uh, she had been hospitalized very often uh, at very expensive facilities because insurance didn't cover that in those days. So my mother waved them away and said, we'll watch her. Um, except that she didn't, uh, she, she was not at home at the time that Nancy later that day slipped out the back door and went towards the train tracks. So that night, the night that Nancy died, my dad called us all into the living room and he, and he said very firmly, if anybody asks, this was an accident. So we knew that was ridiculous because everybody in our neighborhood and in our parish, which was our Catholic parish, was kind of the center of our universe. Everybody knew that Nancy had tried to kill herself so many times. Um, So it was a ludicrous order from my dad, but it was the the incentive behind it was that he was ashamed. He was he was embarrassed that his sister, his daughter had taken her own life. Uh, And and he was afraid also that she would be denied a Catholic funeral and burial. And that was not a small worry because that indeed did happen. The church had a firm policy that people who take their own lives have committed a moral sin and they're going to hell. And so they're not going to be permitted a funeral or burial in a Catholic cemetery. So he had every incentive to, to tell us that. But the, the net effect on us uh, was that it, it, it made us ashamed, more ashamed and that this, the the subliminal message is that this was a you know this was 
a shameful choice that Nancy made, and we need to hide that that truth. Um, and I, I really think that that set the stage for years of of agony for the rest of us because we we're not going to keep that secret, and um, it just perpetuated the shame. Yeah, that's uh, and you were twenty years old at the time, yes. right? Yeah. yeah. And I was yeah. I was editor of my college newspaper, and talk about irony. And I described the scene in the book. To me, this is this is one of the saddest scenes. But this was the couple of days after Nancy's funeral, and I remember sitting on the front porch steps, waiting for the weekly, our little local weekly news magazine, to show up because I was sure that they were going to have a story about my sister's death in there. She died as a alluded to she was hit by a train so it was a very public event and sure enough there was a four paragraph story about 24 year old woman killed by a train but I didn't want my mom to see that I just thought that would hurt her feelings so I waited on the steps for the uh, mailman to show up with a magazine and I ripped the obit or that news story out of the uh, magazine and hid it in my socks and underwear drawer. Um, and so I just thought that was so ironic that here I was then a budding journalist, myself writing stories about accidents or fires or mayhem. But this was something I was so ashamed of and so nervous about that I, I tore that thing out and hid it. And then Danny. So I want to um, talk about him for a minute because you you asked a great question in the book. Um, that I've been really pondering ever since. Um, and uh, you could talk about Danny's story a, a little bit. And then, but, but the, the question you ask um, after Danny's death, when you were trying to um, explain it to your own kids, um, you know, Uncle Danny uh, to them, is you said, how do we talk about suicide without normalizing it or vilifying it? Which I thought was such a great question to ask. And, to your, you know, the best of your ability, what is the answer to that? And t- you tell us about Danny as yeah, well. About Danny. So, so Danny was 14 when Nancy died. He was, uh, had just finished his freshman year of high school. Danny was this darling little guy, you know, so he was the second youngest in the family. Nancy was the second oldest. And I was in the middle. I was the fourth. So I knew everybody pretty well, nicely positioned to know everybody in the family. And Danny, six years younger than I, was just, I always considered him just this little cute little brother. He was just a rascal, but not in a mean way. He was a, he was a cute guy, um, funny, dear. He was tender and, and dear. Um, when, when Nancy died, that really shook him uh, in, a, in a way that it didn't shake the rest of us. I mean, he was very embarrassed. And he did tell people that she was killed in an accident. Um, he had a lot of bitterness and, and a lot of shame and anger. And it wasn't dealt with properly. And as he grew up, he made a lot of bad decisions. He became very impetuous. He was ultimately diagnosed with bipolar as well. But he had always considered Nancy's suicide to be an act of great weakness, and he was very angry at her. So when, as he grew older, um, his problems began to emerge, and he didn't have a healthy way to cope with with 
his his erratic behavior, and he was too afraid, I think he was too ashamed, to admit that he had mental illness and needed help. So it went untreated. He resisted it. When we would approach him and try to get him into help, into care, he would really lash out. He just stayed well clear of the family for a long time. Uh, but at the time of his death, he was 34 when he died. And I felt that we'd really blown it. You know, with Nancy, we were all pretty young. We did our best. Um, I felt with Danny, he, we mismanaged it. We just, and, and that's being harsh on, our, on myself and, and my family. I think we tried in our own ways, but he had so much going for him. You know, he was really bright and funny. Anyway, when he when he ended up dying, um, and he he had written me a note the week before he died, wrote me a letter, and he never wrote me letters. But, uh, told me that he had been suffering from, you know, mental illness and really apologizing. So I now know that it was really kind of a suicide note that he wrote me. Um, but when after when so the day that he died, I was really obviously really shaken. But by my, but by then my my kids were I think they were nine and ten years old. They're old enough to know what suicide was, and I didn't want to repeat the mistake that my dad I think had made by telling us to say it was an accident. So I wanted to be very forthcoming with my own children, but I also knew that they were young enough that I wasn't sure how to frame it for them. That is a very difficult line to straddle. Is you know, you want to acknowledge it and tell the truth, but you don't want to make it anything that's going to scare them or, uh, yeah, just that, I think, to, to scare them. So I really wrestled with that in the immediate moments after I got the news about Danny is how do I tell this to my kids? Um, and we've, you know, we, my husband and I have took great care to, to make sure that, that our, our kids were it, it, I'll fully explain to them. But I, Nate, I don't have an answer to your question. I mean, how when we talk about suicide, we have to be very careful because there, we don't want to encourage it. There is such a thing as the contagion effect. I know that as a, as a journalist and as now a professor teaching mental health reporting, you know, we, we don't want to write these salacious stories about suicide that make them sound heroic or glamorous. But neither do you want to vilify it so the person is, you know, it's it's a it's an act of a person who is not well. Yeah. And that's I, I figured there's not a there's not a great answer. You know, I, I think it's there's a there's a tension that's just yeah. always going to exist as it relates to that. But further to that idea, you you say this in, in the book that suicide deprives families of the primal need to grieve fully. Can you, can you expand on that a little bit? And then sure. what you say to someone who's lost a family member yeah. to suicide? Yeah, I think so. So um, growing up in the parish that I did, where there were lots of big families, just by law of nature or the odds, people are going to die. There's going to be tragedies. Kids drown. They get in car accidents. They get leukemia. Anyway, I've observed, you know, when, when somebody dies in a big family, they are, people are over there like a rocket, you know, with casseroles and uh, get well car or, you know, sympathy cards and 
And my family was surrounded by a lot of attention and affection and and sympathy, but it's a it's different when it's a suicide. There there is that patina of shame, and people really afraid to have too thorough of a conversation. I'm talking about in that era. I'm sure it's different now. When you can't fully uh, process why somebody died, why somebody took their own life, and the guilt that you feel about that, the the conflict. You know, I, I talk in the book on the night that my sister died, I had this very strange reaction. You know, I felt relieved. And that made me feel guilty. I thought, oh my God, what's the matter with me? I feel like this all this tension going out of my body, you know, um, and that was very strange to me because I thought I'm supposed to be so upset and I was sad, but I was my prevailing emotion was relief because I'd watched her suffer and struggle and create great suffering for others for so many years. So suicide does, when I say that it deprives you the, the primal need to grieve, because it's, it's so complicated and you get tangled up in that, again, the, the guilt and the unresolved grief. And so there's that. And, and as to what do you say to somebody whose loved one dies by suicide? I think, you know, in my opinion, you say exactly what you would say if they had died of leukemia or if they had died of heart attack. You're so sorry. You want to talk about the person. You don't want to sweep that person under the carpet. Um, It's not painful to talk about. It's more painful than not talk about it. So those who would just not acknowledge Nancy's existence, that to me was much more hurtful than somebody saying, you know, tell me about your sister who died. So I think we have to give that same platform that same opportunity to grieve and to speak of the person and speak of that person with all the humanity that you would a person who dies in any other way. Gosh, that's so true. Um, it, you know, and Danny, he said, um, this was in one of the notes that he wrote to you. He said, only love and understanding can conquer this disease. Like, mm-hmm kind of looking back and having time to think about that and process that. What did he mean by that? Yeah. So this was the note that he wrote me the week before he died. And and again, it was so strange to get a note, a letter from him because he'd never written me a letter before. And um, when I opened it up, I was, I was so confused. It was very contrite and he was very, he was just basically unburdening himself to say, I finally admit I have mental illness. I've behaved badly all these years. And he was apologizing. And when I read it at the time, I thought, oh, this is so sweet. And then upon further reflection, I thought, oh, wait a minute. This looks like a suicide note. And so I called my dad and I said, you know, where's Danny? And I was very frantic. Um, And my dad said, oh, he's right here. Don't worry. I'm watching him. But that that one is, and then of course, you you can't watch somebody 24-7. So later that week, my dad goes out to play a game of golf, and that's when Danny ended up dying, taking his own life. Um, and and there was a lot of fallout from that. I was, you know, quite angry with my dad, which you know I see now. If Danny would have wouldn't have died that morning, he would have picked another day probably. So it wasn't helpful to blame my dad. After Danny died, I wrote that expression down on a, on an index card. 
So only love and understanding can conquer this disease. And I taped it to the side of my computer in the newsroom. Uh, and I made that my battle cry. You know, I thought I'm going to write, I'm going to do everything I can as a journalist. And I'm going to try and get answers to that, to, you know, why aren't we serving people who struggle? Why aren't we treating them better? Why aren't there, why aren't there better medications? Why, why aren't there more doctors to help them? Why aren't there more hospital beds to treat them? That expression, only love and understanding can conquer this disease. Again, when I first read it, I thought that sounded so cheesy. It just sounded like a, something you'd, you'd read in a Hallmark card or something. But over the years, as I've had a chance to really reflect on it, you know, I've really found it to be the perfect algorithm. Like, yes, if you love somebody, you will work to try and understand them. And if you understand them, you're going to know that they're suffering. I was going to say suffering and struggling. They're doing both. They're, in, they're hurting and they need help. And, and you'll be very motivated to get them help. So I think Danny's words are really kind of the answer to what we need to do. We need to love and understand people who are suffering and do what we can to help them. That's so beautiful. And it's interesting reading your book, too, because, um, you know, you were so resistant to therapy. (laughs) And here I am reading reading everything you've been through and all the things you've learned. And um, it's so funny because when it comes to yourself, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's different, but why, why were you so resistant oh my to God. therapy? It, Nate, that is like the greatest mystery. Like how dumb is that? Can you imagine <laughs> growing up in the family that I grew up in? My brothers and sisters all were smart enough to get help. I was the last one to that party. And it was really only when I started writing this book and I was scared. I, I was going to, as I said, I was going to go through the police reports of my brother and sister's deaths. I was going to unearth their medical records. I was going to go through my brother's legal records. Um, and I was scared. My mom's diaries, my dad's AA books. I was frightened about what I was going to find. I also was so worried about hurting my brothers and sisters. So I finally, finally engaged the services of a therapist. And I said, please help me to not do anything stupid to myself or to my brothers and sisters. And bless her heart, she's been amazing. I'm very relieved and glad that I have now accessed mental health care. But your question is, why didn't I do that? And I think, again, how ironic is it that I spent 25 years or more writing stories about the inadequate mental health care in this country and I was my own greatest barrier to that mental health care for myself. And I think that's rooted in prejudice. I think it's rooted in shame and fear. Like I, I believe part of me was, was afraid that if I peel back the layers, that maybe I'd realize that I too had a form of mental illness. And what would that mean for me? I really now believe that who gets through this life without a patch or two of mental illness? Um, you know, some have more. I don't mean to, to make light of that because people have serious, persistent 
mental illness that is treatment resistant or medications can't touch it. And those, those people greatly suffer. So, and I, I know that. And then there are those of us who, by circumstances of what life throws at you, struggle from time to time. And thank God you, we do have access to therapy. I've, I've not had to be medicated, but that doesn't make me any better than anybody else who is. And I'm grateful for people who find relief with medication. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I know the answer to this question. I don't know. I don't know there ever is 100% healing from the difficulties of life. Right. Uh, but was this, this journey of fact finding and digging and telling your family story, was it healing for you to a certain extent? Absolutely. Of course. Yes. Uh, again, because of the work that I do as a teller of stories, there's a lot of peace that comes from figuring out the, the narrative arc of your story um, and the opportunity to sit and think about things and to process it. Uh, so this has been a fantastic gift um, and it's, it's helped me immensely. Now, does that mean all my problems are over? <laughs> they certainly are not. Um, but I'm very grateful for the, for the chance to have written this book and the response that I'm getting is so heartening. It's wonderful. Uh, that's how you and I came to know one another, right? One of my high school classmates came upon this, um, and she put us in touch with one another. So it's opened so many doors for me. It's it's uh, fortified old relationships, and it's helped me forge new ones. And it's I've accomplished what I set out to do, which is to make people feel less alone and frightened and invite them to tell their own stories. That's really beautiful. What are some of the things you do today, like to, to maintain wellness? Is there anything specific you do related to diet exercise? You mentioned you jump in Lake Michigan uh, occasionally. Yeah, Nate, I have a whole regimen. So from top to bottom. So first of all, I, I love, I, I am a prayer. I, I pray a, a great deal. I, first thing every morning, I read some meditative, you know, meditations and reflections and, and I pray. I also do planks every morning, like, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg style. I get down on the floor and do my planks and do my stretches. Um, I am, as you mentioned, I jump into Lake Michigan every chance I can get. So I have a group of wonderful lady friends. Uh, we call ourselves the noodle ladies because we take these noodles, these styrofoam <laughs> noodles, like, and we jump around like a bunch of crazy people. And it's so exciting and so invigorating. So I do that. You know, I'm, I take a lot of walks. I, I have a fantastic family. Um, so, and I have wonderful friends. Uh, but so I, I'm, I'm always, I can't forget Wordle and all my little crossword puzzles. So I, I have my little joyful moments. And I think it's really important to feed those, feed yourself with joy wherever you can. And you got to work it. You got to get down there and, and really do those planks and jump into that cold lake and challenge yourself on that, whatever little puzzle you're doing, because it's, um, it's good discipline. Absolutely. 
I want you to talk about Jake because when we were talking the other day, yeah. you talked about him, you know, this is, this is your brother, Jake, like being a success story just yeah. in terms of having his own challenges. Yeah. And can you tell us about Jake? Sure. Absolutely. And, and your poor listeners, cause there's a lot of, there's a lot of characters in my family because there's a lot of people in my family, but, um, but just, uh, a quick rundown. So Jake is the oldest boy. So whereas I'm number four in line, he's the third. So Jake is a couple years older than I. Um, and, and Jake also suffers from anxiety and depression. Um, I think he's also, uh, he would say, and I think his doctors would tell you that he has kind of an executive functioning disorder, they would call it. So he has trouble kind of prioritizing, um, either like figuring out how to pay bills. He struggles with kind of the practical daily tasks of life. So what we go to the grocery store, what to buy, how to make that meal. Um, he's a super bright guy. He was an Eagle Scout. He was, um, you know, he got fantastic grades in school. Um, but he's just unable to kind of string things together in a way that wouldn't help him be uh, independent and successful in classic terms in life. So Jake lives in a group home. He's now 68 years old and he lives in a place just outside of Chicago and he likes living in a, in a congregate setting. He doesn't want, it doesn't want to be in an apartment by himself because he's afraid that he would be too lonely. But what Jake does that is awesome is talks all the time. I mean, not, in an, an obnoxious way, but in an enlightening way, he's he's not at all afraid to talk about the struggles that he has and when he is struggling to ask for help. So here's an example. We ha we went on a big family vacation the summer before last, and Jake was really struggling to figure out what to pack. I have a hard time packing too, but I think when you have that executive functioning disorder, you're really paralyzed. So anyway, he called us up and said, you know, can somebody help me figure out what to put in my suitcase? He's that way when he's feeling listless or really depressed, too depressed to get out of bed. He'll call us and just say, I'm really having a hard time. And to me, that takes so much humility and so much courage and also faith, you know, trust in other people that they will help you. And we always rise to the occasion. You know, we kind of, we're a little competitive now about who's helping Jake the most, you know, but it's like, to me, that is how it should work. You know, he represents to me, as you said, the success story of somebody living with a mental illness who is not afraid to ask for help. In my opinion, Nate, I think one of the most underappreciated qualities of a human being is the ability to ask for help. We put a lot of emphasis in our society about those who give help, and they're great. Thank you for that, everybody, all you helpers out there. But I also think uh, we need to, we would all do well to learn how to ask for help. That's so good because it takes courage, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm curious to know a career journalist and an author of a phenomenal book. What's the best book you've ever read and why? Thank you. Well, I thought about this and my answer is The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Oh, yes. By so good. Mark Twain. So 
I don't know. I love that book so much. He's so sassy. He does not want to take no for an answer and again, you know, up against the conventions of society at the time. Uh, he sticks with his buddy, Jim. And my favorite line of all time is when, you know, they're, they told him he's going to go to hell if he hangs around with this black guy. And he says, all right, then I'll go to hell. So I just love that. I want, we all need to be more like uh, Huck Finn. Absolutely. What's the best place you've ever traveled? Well, I love Ireland. It has everything I need. It's got rocky coastline. It's got people with those great lilts, the lilting brogues of the way the Irish <laughs> people talk. Uh, and it's got delicious beer. You know, <laughs> it's good for you. Yes. So, good for the soul, right? Yeah. <laughs> if you were something other than a journalist, what would it be? Oh, man. Well, my, my, I would be a concert pianist. And I cannot play the piano to save my skin. I took lessons. When I was a kid, I took lessons in the basement of a convent where the nuns lived. And I was so bad, they just they couldn't do anything with me. Then many years later, when I was in college, my senior year of college, I took a winter class. We had this winter term. term. You could take anything. I wanted to do something completely different. So I took piano lessons then. And I was even worse so when I say I'd be a concert pianist, it, I think that it would just be impossible. But I would love to start when I was about four years old and just really take it seriously. I admire concert pianists. I would love to be one someday. Never going to happen. Well, it's never too late to start. Meg. Yeah. That's <laughs> well, always learning, right? Third try. <laughs> third try might be a charm. <laughs> Oh, Meg, I, I'm so honored um, that that you dropped by to, to spend some time. I feel like I could talk to you for hours. Sure. Um, just not only about mental health in your book, but just about life. Uh, you're just a, a really sweet soul. So I want to thank you sincerely uh, for spending some time here and for the work you're doing. Thanks, Nate. It was just a pleasure for me. I appreciate it. Meg Kissinger, what a phenomenal human. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, it means the world. Um, please share these conversations if you have people in your life uh, that need to hear them. Um, I'd be so grateful. Uh, we'll see you next time on the Chase the Peace podcast.